Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we are reading out of John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and starting in verse 11 and going to 18. John 10 verse 11 to 18 and it reads, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're now at part three of the parable of the Good Shepherd. In the first part, Jesus speaks of calling out his sheep from among the covenant people of Israel. The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were the thieves and the robbers who prevented the Israelites from God and, in fact, were those that led the people into apostasy. Jesus was the true shepherd who entered in via the gate. The Pharisees didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, so Jesus went on with a second example. The second example of the sheepfold was the country sheepfold where Jesus himself was the gate. He calls himself the gate. Uh, the sheepfold is the church called out of Judaism. The thieves and robbers were false messiahs claiming to be the long-awaited prophet who would lead the people of Israel out of bondage. Jesus describes the kind of life his sheep have under his watch. He came that they would have life and have it abundantly. The abundant Christian life is not one of riches and fame, but one of tranquility, one of peace, peace with God and peace with one another. Jesus gives us all we need in him, and because of that, we can live lives of relative tranquility. We look through Psalm 23 as to what that looks like, and uh, this psalm offers us as Christians what you cannot find anywhere else. The exhortation to you was to believe in these promises, to know in your heart that, you, that what you have in Christ is above anything else that this world could possibly offer you. To have Christ as our shepherd is indeed to have it all. Are you poor? You are rich in Christ. Are you weak? You are made strong in Christ. The world does not understand this and they show it by rejecting God and by rejecting his wisdom. They show it by pursuing that which will never satisfy. Mammon, power, uh, fame, fortune, all that stuff. 
it will never satisfy. It is a sad state of affairs, one of which only God can remedy. Only God can fulfill that hole in your heart, right? This week, we see Jesus expanding on this parable, giving us greater insight into what it means to actually be the good shepherd, the good shepherd. There are three things I want you to, uh, that I want to draw your attention to. First is the concept of the good shepherd. Jesus contrasts what the good shepherd is with that of the hired hand, right? His previous two comparisons were to thieves and robbers. This time it's to the hired hand. Second, I want to look more to the promise of the sheep, not of this fold in verse 16. And finally, I want to draw your attention to the obedience of Jesus to his father and what that means for us. All right? So, we will start with the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. This is the fourth I am statement made by Jesus in the gospel of John. In this statement, Jesus is calling himself the good shepherd. When I read this, I instantly thought of Luke 18, 18, which says, Then a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What was Jesus' response? What an outstanding question. That's a great question. You even came to the right person. Let me tell you. He didn't say that, right? What did he say? Jesus starts with, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This seems like an odd response to us because we don't differentiate well in the English language between uses of the word good. Greek has a number of different words that simply translate into English as good. Here in John and in Luke, the Greek words are kalos and agathos. Both are somewhat interchangeable. And they're used when referring to the intrinsic nature of something beautiful or morally flawless. Something beautiful or morally flawless. Jesus is not talking about being a shepherd who is good at his job. Although he most certainly is good at his job. Just like in Luke when the ruler asked him, good teacher. He wasn't talking to Jesus about what an outstanding teacher he is, although he is an outstanding teacher. But instead, he was buttering up Jesus by calling him morally flawless, the beautiful one who is morally flawless. Little did the, real, uh, the ruler realize that Jesus indeed is morally flawless. And that was Jesus' point when he said to him, Why do you call me good? Agathos. Don't you know only God is Agathos? Jesus, by using the term kalos here, is calling himself the morally good shepherd. The morally good shepherd. How does a morally good shepherd differentiate himself from one that is not? Jesus, as he did in the previous two uh, parables, gives us the comparison, and this time, of course, is to the hired hand. The first comparison is that of ownership. 
that of ownership. Jesus says in verse 12 that the hired hand does not own the sheep. The hired hand does not own the sheep. In verse 14, we see Jesus claiming that ownership when he says, I know my own. Mine, mine own, right? Have you ever considered or have you ever give, given consideration to the fact that as Christians, as Christians, we are owned by Christ. We are owned by Christ. John MacArthur has written a controversial little book, if you can imagine that, called Slave. I have a copy of it right here, right? Uh, if you'd like to read it, let me know. In this book, which I obviously highly recommend, MacArthur makes the biblical argument that all of mankind are slaves. All of mankind are slaves. We are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to Christ. And only in being a slave to Christ are we truly free. You are free being a slave to Christ. <coughs> Pardon me, this was not an overly controversial assertion for the most part of the history of the church, as slavery was widely accepted up until the early 19th century. Today, the idea of people being slaves is repugnant. It's socially unacceptable. And I must add here the irony of the times we live in. While there has never been a time in history where slavery has been more socially or legally unacceptable, there has also never been a time in history where the overall numbers of slaves worldwide has been higher. Today there are more slaves than ever before. I'm reminded of the outrage a few weeks back, I don't know if you'll remember this, uh, when Muslims in Ontario stood up against the alphabet mafia uh, and they were waving signs and whatnot. But one of the signs said something along the lines of, it said something like, leave our kids alone, they belong to us, or something along those lines. This, this, this simple assertion that was on that sign sparked outrage among the liberal left. They were beside themselves. Why? How dare they claim their kids to be theirs? What were they thinking? Claiming ownership of their children. How dare they? I have news for you, kiddos. You belong to your parents. You belong. You're theirs right? You're theirs. They are legally responsible for you until such time that you become of legal age. Until then, you belong to them. Biblically, you belong to them as part of a covenant household. The Western world, as is our habit lately to be in a race to the bottom, is claiming things it should not claim. Let me give you a couple examples. The government of Ontario, a couple years back, publicly claimed partial ownership of children in Ontario. The government claimed ownership of children. 
And this was not by accident. This wasn't a slip of the tongue. This wasn't a, you know, I'm just speaking off, the, off my cuff. Not at all. This is deliberate. The plan is to undermine the family structure. The plan is to plant seeds into the minds of children that they don't have to listen to their parents, that they are autonomous. Until, of course, the government wants at them, then you become theirs. That's the trick. It's a power play, and we as Christians must not fall for it. Not only must we not fall for it, but we must be willing to tell those that would claim our children as theirs or claim children don't belong to anyone, as they like to say, to kindly get stuffed. This is where we offer our pushback. Jesus owns us as Christians. Jesus owns us. And in him... We are free. John 8, 36, For if the Son sets you free, you are what? You are free indeed. True freedom is only found in being a slave to Christ. Freedom is found in being owned by the good shepherd. The, uh, the second comparison is that of knowledge. We go back to verse 14 again. I know my own and my own know me. What does Jesus mean by this? If we keep reading, Jesus elaborates for us, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Okay, so the next obvious question then is, is how does the Father know Jesus and how does Jesus know the Father? If we can answer that, then we can better understand what Jesus is talking about with relation to us. It does not mean assent, okay? That's the important part. To know does not mean to assent from the Latin ascensus, which means to agree with or give assent to. To know, in this sense, is not head knowledge. I know that two plus two equals four. It's not that kind of know. The knowledge being described here by Jesus is one of intimacy. It's one of relationship. It's very, very relational. We can see in many places in Scripture how Jesus and the apostles describe this relationship. John 14, 7. If you had known me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How is this possible? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verse 9, For in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Wait, now that sounds like Paul is making the assertion that Jesus and the Father are one. John 10, verse 30, Jesus speaking, I and the Father are one. Well, how about that? What does Jesus pray for in his high priestly prayer in John 17? Verse 21, I pray that all of them may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Well, what in the world does that mean? Glad you asked. John 15, verse 5, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What's fascinating about this verse in, in John 10 is the, this comparison is that our relationship to Jesus is, or at least should be, similar to that of the relationship between Jesus and the Father. That's amazing to me. I said similar. Why similar when Jesus is using metaphor and not a simile? Because the relationship between Jesus and the Father, of course, is perfect, right? The relationship between Jesus and the Father is perfect. We, the branches, we, the sheep, are not, right? But we do have, in some significant capacity, the ability to know Jesus and to know him intimately. He knows us perfectly. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Now, I don't want to belabor the point here, but it is important that we understand something about intimate knowledge. If we claim to know someone intimately, but when describing that person, we get them completely wrong, can we truly say that we know them? And can we truly love those whom we don't know? This reminds me of a story I heard. A young man contacted HeartCry Ministries President Paul Washer, wanting them to take him on as a missionary to China. When Mr. Washer quizzed the young man on why, the young man said, I love, I just love the Chinese people, and I want to give my life being a missionary to them. Paul replied, young man, do you know why you love the Chinese? The young man was a little confused at this point and gave, kind of shook his head and said, no. Paul retorted, because you don't know any of them. What was the point Paul was making? What most people miss isn't the fact Love is easy when you don't know someone, right? That's not his point. But instead, true love, true love for someone is impossible without knowing them as they truly are. You cannot truly love that which you don't truly know. Jesus promises us that his sheep know him. His sheep know him, and more importantly, he knows them. The hired hand does not know them. He may have a census. He may have head knowledge. He knows of their existence. He knows uh, the rudimentary things about them. He has head knowledge, but he doesn't know them as the owner knows them. He doesn't know them in any intimate way. And more importantly, nor does he care to. Nor does he care to. Not like the good shepherd. Remember, the good shepherd called you by name. 
If this doesn't resonate with you, I suggest you explore who Christ is and what he means to you. It's probably important, right? Do you know him? Do you love him? Thirdly, Jesus cares for his sheep. Now, last time we walked through, a couple weeks ago, we walked through Psalm 23. If you would like to see what caring for sheep looks like, you can go back and listen to that sermon, or you can simply, I think actually we're going to end today with singing Psalm 23. Pay real close attention when we sing that psalm, right? This is an outstanding picture of what caring for sheep looks like. The hired hand does not care for the sheep. Caring for sheep is hard work, and the hired hand has little incentive to care to that extent. The good shepherd, the good shepherd takes pleasure in caring for his sheep, for they are his, and he loves them, and he loves them. Fourth and finally, how does the good shepherd demonstrate his love and care for his sheep? Verse 15b tells us, and I laid down my life for the sheep. I laid down my life for the sheep. This is a proof text for the Reformed understanding of what's called definite atonement, meaning that Christ died for a particular people. Christ did not die for everyone in a general sense, but died for anyone, Jew or Gentile, male or female, particularly, right? He died for anyone particularly. Jesus died for his sheep. Jesus did not die for the goats. He didn't die for the goats. James 5 and verse 5, speaking of the arrogant and haughty rich, he says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Goats fattened for the day of slaughter. Jeremiah 25, verse 34, speaking to the shepherds of Jeremiah's day, Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, Roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter have come. You will fall and be shattered like fine pottery. There is a day of judgment coming. On that day, those who were called and justified in Christ will be saved. All others will perish. All others will perish. Christ did not die for those that are perishing. Jesus, being the good shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep. The pretender, the hired hand, will not so much as receive a scratch for the sheep. The hired hand throws down his staff and hightails it out there, out of there at the first sign of danger. The hired hand leaves the sheep defenseless, left to be scattered, left to be slaughtered. The good shepherd protects his sheep to the point of death. The expression, over my dead body, comes to mind. And this is what the good shepherd has done for us. This is what the good shepherd has done for us. He has laid down his life for the ransom of many. 
His sheep are saved through his glorious sacrifice. The wrath of God being poured out on him so that we may be declared free. No other would do that. No other could do that. Only he that is morally perfect, only the only he who is the spotless lamb, only he who has fulfilled the law of God could redeem a broken people. Only the good shepherd could do such a thing. Verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. God's intention from the beginning was to save a people to himself, and that it would not be just just Israelites from the Old Testament, but from the entire world. And we can see this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament passages such as Isaiah 42, verse 6-7 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should... Uh, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to where? To the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. Psalms 67, verse 1 to 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Psalm 96, verses 1 to 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, among all of them. Salvation always, was always, has always been intended for all people. Israel was the Old Testament light that was to shine and bring people to the knowledge of God. What Israel failed to do would be and was accomplished in Christ. What Israel failed to do, Christ accomplished. He had two sheepfolds, the Jews and then everybody else. If you're not Jewish, you're everybody else. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God does not play favorites. Acts 10, verse 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Christianity spread over the known world relatively quickly. The early church, the first converts, 
were Israelites. They were Jews. But it was not long before the early church was overrun with Gentile converts, turning the known world upside down, bringing salvation to countless people. Paul writes to the Romans around 56 AD, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Folks, 23 years after the death of Christ and his ascension, with the great commission given to the apostles, Paul declares that the gospel had been delivered to the entire known world, meaning the extent of the Roman Empire, which was vast. 23 years, the gospel went as far west as Great Britain. The gospel went as far east as India. After the fall of the Roman Empire, the gospel message continued to spread, impacting nation after nation. If you don't know church history well, and the story of how Christianity and the gospel upended our entire world, may I suggest you come to Kevin and I for some resources. This is your story. The history of the church is ours. It's our story. We should know it. The good shepherd had other sheep, and his sheep, most importantly, heard his voice, and they came. And they continue to come to this day through the power of the preaching of the gospel. Christ will not return until all his sheep has been, have been found. Second Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to reach repentance. All Christ's sheep must come to faith before he returns. He will not come until then. He promises that he will not lose one of what the Father has given him. Why hasn't Christ returned, some asked? Because there are more sheep to be found. He hasn't come because he doesn't have his full flock yet. Simple. Third and lastly, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father, verses 17 to 18. I want to tackle this verse from back to front, okay, if I may. What does the text mean by this charge? What does it mean by this charge? The word charge here in the Greek is better translated as commandment. It's commandment. It refers not to the Ten Commandments, but to a specific commandment. What Jesus was tasked with, what he was commanded to accomplish, was specific. What was this specific commandment? That he laid down his life for the sheep. 
Philippians 2 verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was commanded, Jesus was commanded by the Father to die. Jesus was commanded to take on flesh and receive for his trouble the wrath of God. He was commanded that task. Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The Father commanded the Son to become the curse that we deserved. That's what was commanded. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But part of the commandment was to also rise from the grave. I have authority to lay it down, Jesus says, and I have authority to take it up again. Christ's death was not permanent. And how could it be? How could it be? 1 Corinthians 15, 55, 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Revelation 1, verse 8. I am the living one. This is Jesus speaking. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And because of the obedience of Christ in all things, but especially the ultimate sacrifice of Christ dying on the cross for his sheep, the Father loves him. Christ loved the Father and demonstrated that love through obedience, even obedience unto death. And in return, the Father, in showing his love for the Son, granted him to rise from the dead and to be seated at his right hand, ruling and reigning forevermore. The obvious question that could then lead to an objection would be, was the love of the Father for the Son contingent upon Christ's obedience? Was the love of the Father for the Son contingent upon Christ's obedience? The best answer I can come up with is both yes and no. 
I want you to notice first the tense of Christ's claim. He says, the Father loves me. The Father loves me. This is present tense, present tense active, right? But then there's a, there's a because, right? Because I laid down my life for the sheep. This was something that hadn't been accomplished, that this was something that was yet in the future. So God the Father actively and presently loves the Son for that which hadn't yet occurred. Would the Father have the same love for the Son if Jesus failed in carrying out his mission? I think the answer is obvious. It would be no. But the better question is, is could Jesus fail in his mission? Could Jesus have failed in his mission? The answer also is no. Therefore, the statement or the question of the contingency of the love of the Father for the Son is really in theory only. It's in theory only. In reality... In reality, Jesus could not and did not fail. The good shepherd did indeed lay down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd, the morally flawless shepherd, could not do anything but carry out the Father's commandment. The good shepherd laid down his life for you and me. God's people said, Amen. Would you bow your heads with me, Heavenly Father? Thank you for the good shepherd. We thank you for the love that you have for the Son and the Son has for you and the very fact that we are made one with you through the Son and that you know us and that we indeed can know you in the same way, in some capacity, is, is truly, truly amazing. We thank you for that. We thank you for the salvation that you have provided for not only us, but for others that have yet to be found. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and courage and uh, give us a sense of honor in which we as your ambassadors have been tasked with going to find your sheep. And I would pray that you would help us to do that no matter where they are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.